First, let me start off by saying this is a bit unusual for me because um, this is not actually a recording from Sunday morning. We attempted, as we always do, to get our messages on podcast, and the message was completely unusable on the recording. There were so many things that transpired on Sunday morning trying to what what I would simply say is to thwart a message by going out and for the first time I mentioned this in service for the first time I think I've ever done there was a connection for me that was made between the events of revelation and what we're seeing unfold in our society as a whole um, and this particular church that we look at today, the third church identified in Revelation chapter 2, uh, it it hit home just because of the, the personal nature and the connection and then what's transpired in our society over the last three years. It was uh, a little bit on the crazy side. So uh, just as a, a, a reminder, we've had two good weeks of um, messages from voices within our church that that I trust, that I love to be able to hear. I love the differences in, in styles and teaching and um, between Justin and Shane, and I'm grateful for both of them and their leadership here and their willingness to step in and be a voice uh, to, to bring forth the word in the unique way that God has blessed them to do that. So now you're back to hearing from me again as we get back into Revelation. I told you we, we definitely needed a couple weeks uh, because... It can get really weighty. Um, I hope, as always, that these messages are beneficial, they're useful, but they are actually revelatory as revelation is intended to be for the church. Um, as we've said throughout this series, there is a, a basic structure that Jesus is using when he's addressing his church, and there's a basic way that he is communicating truth to his church, but at the end of every one of these, he, he states, he who has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so we know it wasn't just intended, though primarily intention was for the individual churches that Jesus is addressing to deal with their own issues. But it also points to you and I, not just individually, but collectively. And in this particular church, it becomes even more evident that it's not just about my personal relationship, but it's about the spreading of my personal relationship and the accountability that goes with it when we look at our fellow brothers and sisters who join together with us in church. And so as we look at this next church that Jesus addresses, we take heed to the words that he has put before us. And we go back to Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12. And it says this, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of the one who holds the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where the throne of Satan sits. Yet you have held fast to my name and have not denied your faith in me, even in the day when my faithful witness Antipas was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because some of you hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block before the Israelites, so they would eat food sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. In the same way, some of you also hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. Otherwise, I will come to you shortly and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. 
He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will give the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone inscribed with a new name, known only to the one who receives it. And so as, as we've mentioned throughout this series, especially in the addresses to the churches, Jesus always identifies himself in a little bit of a different manner. And so when you, when you investigate and look into how he addresses this church, in verse 12 he says, These are the words of the one who holds the sharp, double-edged sword. Now all of us who've been in church for any extended period of time, we've seen that phrasing before, not just in Revelation, but in the New Testament in general, how Jesus used the word according to, to what we understand it to be, which is the scriptures, the Holy Bible, as it has been compiled for us to have him revealed to us. We've always seen it that way, but we also know that in John 1, Jesus was the word that became flesh. And so he says it in two different ways, but obviously he is not going to shoot himself out of his mouth. So he's talking specifically about his word, but it always... As, as I do with all of the messages and all of God's word, when I approach it, God is so gracious to me to allow me to ask questions of his word. And so I, I ask the simple question, what does it say about the church that Jesus addresses them this way? And so obviously outside of the obvious for him to address the church with a statement about himself, the, the other reason is this. Pergamum in its situation and where it is uh, functionally located in and amongst the a Asian provinces and the Asian churches that we see identified in Revelation, Pergamum is actually the political capital of the Roman Empire for all of the Asian provinces that Roman now, Rome now occupies. And so all of the information comes from this hub and is disseminated out like a web all throughout the region. And so everything that is wanted to be stated from the Roman Empire from far away is brought to this place and then disseminated out. Now, I've said it already, and I mentioned this a, a few weeks ago about the political prowess and, and the political idolatry that was so prevalent in the church at Smyrna and how bad that was, but it came from here. It was just more evident in that smaller area because that smaller area was populated specifically by a localized group of people. Where Ephesus is a port town and you've got coming and going, Pergamum is also similar, similarly situated. It's not because of, of its port nature, but because people are coming and going from other provinces to Pergamum for for multiple a multitude of reasons, Smyrna really had that political idolatry at the forefront. And it's not so much at the forefront in Pergamum, but it is where all of the, the information is disseminated. It, it can remind you of a modern-day Washington, D.C. It, it doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat. Every time you turn on the TV and look at the news, there is something negative to be said and it's all coming from the same place and I don't care if you hear this today and you are a Republican or you are a Democrat I'm just telling you you're all being lied to and if you're going to place your faith and your trust in that in that system it's going to kill you 
It's what its intention and design is for. Church, hear me on this, because if you don't hear me on this, you'll continue to do what many churches that I know in America do. We're going to worship God and country. You cannot do that. You can't place God and country in the same statement. Now, I am not saying that you should be against your country, but you need to be very, very careful about how much you mix your God and the blessings of our God in with how we feel about our country. The politicized role that we see being played out on a regular basis is a deceptive tactic by the enemy to keep you confused. And so when Jesus addresses his church at Pergamum, he knows that all of the information that's being disseminated from this capital of the Roman Empire in these Asian provinces, he's saying, I am standing against what they are saying, and this is the truth. My word is the truth. And when Jesus speaks it this way, the, the symbolism is one who is armed with strength and is intentional about his victory. Armed with strength and victory. Jesus is trying to tell his church, you're going to hear all of this stuff. And there's going to be a part of you that your spirit tells you something is not right about this. And we shouldn't just go along with it. Now, when we think about that from a political standpoint, you also have another aspect of Pergamum that is very much important, especially in our modern context, about how things are going in our society, especially over the last three years. Now, obviously, this is a podcast, so you're not going to be able to see what I put on the screen. But if you go and you Google Asclepius, who is the God, one of the primary gods of the Roman Empire who was worshipped in these Asian provinces. He is at the forefront and his primary temple is located in Pergamum. As a matter of fact, there are four temples that, that were built for the Greek gods, including Zeus and Asclepius and, and Diana, who we talked about in Ephesus and, and others. There were three additional temples that lined the streets that were to... Uh, to enact and affect what we talked about a couple weeks ago in Smyrna, the political aspect of worship. One of those temples was built for, specifically, Caesar Augustus, who you know very well from the Gospels and the account of the birth of Christ. But Asclepius kind of rises to the occasion in Pergamum because he has the only temple in that region. So people would travel to this temple to pay homage and worship Asclepius. Now, if you're not familiar with who this is, Asclepius is the god of health and wisdom. So when they came to the temple, the intention was, was that they would enter the temple. They would be allowed to sleep inside the temple. The temple had no windows. It was a completely darkened area. The temple contained what they said were tame snakes. The snakes would slither over your body, would, would be the, the, the means by which Asclepius would use his power and authority to heal you, whether it be mentally physically, and even emotionally. Now, what you may not know in a modern context, and I encourage you, if you're listening to this, you can Google this, because, again, you can't see this image. But if you go and you Google Asclepius, and then click on images in Google, you will find multiple, both sculptures and carvings, 
and paintings of the Greek god Asclepius. And in his hand, ironically, in my opinion, I believe in most pictures, it's in his left hand, is a staff with a snake wrapped around it. Now, what you may not pay attention to is if you go and you Google the American Medical Association and you take a look at the symbol that the American Medical Association utilizes as the symbol of health and healing, it's the exact same staff and snake wrapped around it. So your American Medical Association, all hospitals... Physical healing, mental healing, emotional healing, from general physicians to surgeons to psychologists to the whole nine yards are now operating under the banner of this symbol. If you go and look on the outside of many hospitals, not all hospitals, most hospitals have this symbol embossed on the side of the building. If you look at EMS patches, even ambulances that travel into your community will have what's known as the Star of Life tattooed on it. The Star of Life also, you can Google this as well, the Star of Life also has the staff with a snake wrapped around it at its center as the central focus. Now, you can say, well, that's just such a conspiracy. You're, you're a nut. That's fine. You can keep thinking that. You can keep believing under that banner that there's nothing wrong. But we also know what happened to the people at the church in Smyrna who were refusing to go and pay homage every year by sprinkling incense and saying Caesar is Lord. They were being killed for it. We're just deepening the understanding of where our society is going based on what Jesus is revealing through his word in Revelation. And guess what, folks? It is absolutely true that we are going to do that. Why is it? I, I, I'm, I'm a questioner. I question the word. God gives me answers. I question society. Society usually lies to me. Why is it that we are the most educated at this point? We have the most technological advances in modern medicine, but we are the sickest we have the most mental defect when it comes to depression, anxiety, and all this stuff. Because guess what? Doctors are not looking to heal anymore. They're looking for customers. If you're no longer sick, they don't have customers. So the goal is no longer for, for healing to take place. The goal has become about doing all that they can to keep you just well enough to come back to them. That's sick. And you fall for the lie constantly. And church, I, I'm just, I'm telling you, like... This symbol has been something that I, I, it's been a part of my life, my whole, my whole life. My parents, both emergency medical technician, commonly known as EMTs, been on volunteer fire department for my entire life. I rode around, I probably shouldn't tell this, but I rode around as a child sleeping on turnout gear in the back of a 1984 Toyota 4Runner as they went to fire calls and medical calls because I had nowhere else to go because I was so small. And on the, on the patches that they wore, that symbol was there. Now, are there good, well-discerning Christians who are inside the system that are trying to fight battles like this from within? There absolutely are. I believe it wholeheartedly. I believe my mother is one of them. I don't want to get her in trouble, but she's been a nurse. And she constantly questions a lot of the things that come out when it comes to the medical aspects of things that, that are going on 
and she's able to do it inside the walls. And I believe God's working about that. And, and church, here's all I'm trying to get you to understand is, folks, you've got to be a discerner of the spirits that are trying to control you. Because you're going to submit to something. And some of us just blindly submit to the wrong things. And when we do, we want to know why everything is dying around us and why we constantly feel horrible physically, mentally, and emotional, emotionally when we have all of these advances and opportunities. I dare say that it's simply because we don't address this properly. We don't want to hear this. And then when we do hear it, we want to, we want to just dismiss it as, man, that's just, that's just a conspiracy theory by some nut job who preaches. You know, the world's going to say that. People might hear this message on a podcast and they're going to say that. They're going to say there's something wrong with this guy. He's trying to get people really hurt because he doesn't want them to trust. I don't, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is you need to be a spiritual discerner about what you're being told because you keep finding out that lies keep coming out. And so not only do we see, not, not only are we seeing individual addresses to the church that Jesus has, not only are we seeing church history play out because things like this have already happened, we're also seeing this in a modern context, especially in our society, play out stage by stage. And like we've said, when you look at Revelation as a whole, you're looking at a bird's eye view. And then when you break it down into the seven sections that we find in Revelation, you're just getting a little bit closer to the picture. You're getting a little bit closer to the picture until at the end of this picture, you're standing there staring at this beast that's trying to kill you. And you're like, holy cow, I could have seen it at a thousand foot view. And now I'm staring at it face to face and it might just be too late. And our goal is for us not to find ourselves being too late. And when we go back to Jesus addressing his church the way that he did, saying, these are the words of he who has the double-edged sword. These are the words of the one who holds that sharp double-edged sword. He said something similar through the writer of Hebrews, where the writer of Hebrews said in, in chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, the word of God is alive and active. So here's, here's the problem. If the word of God is just written in a book and it's just history and we have no belief that there is authority there and we just dismiss it every time we are encountering something that's uncomfortable, then we do not believe. Let, let me put it like this. How can you believe that the Bible can heal you spiritually, meaning Jesus came, died on a cross, was resurrected by the power of God and the authority of God for your salvation if you would only put your faith and trust in him. How can you believe that if you read the word in Hebrews 4 and it says the word of God is alive and active and it says, let's continue because this is very medically inclined. It says that it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and the spirit. The discernible things, the things that you sit and you question going, man, this guy is, like he's jumping on something and I don't know that I like it. It feels like it's just a nerve to me right now. It penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. He already knows what you're thinking. While you're thinking it, right now, he's already seen it. He's already judged it. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. 
Nothing. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, we also need to go back and remember that when Jesus addresses his seven churches in Revelation, he addresses them a particular way with the exception of two. There are statements that Jesus makes in five of the churches, and he says something like this. He says, I know, and he addresses what it is that he knows about the church. Then he tells them, I hold, meaning I have something against you. This is what I have against you. And then he addresses the church accordingly. And then he says, I will come. In all five instances, he says that. And in all of those instances, the reason that he's coming is in response to what they did when he said, I hold this against you. The only two churches that are not that way is Smyrna because of the persecution and Philadelphia, who you will see later because of the love. They, they never abandoned their first love and he holds nothing against them. So when Jesus addresses his church in Pergamum, he says, I know where you live. Now, you might hear that, and for some people, you could have those creepy conversations, and they tell you, I know where you live, and it would freak you out. But go back and think about what we just saw in, in Hebrews chapter 4. He even can discern the thoughts that you have as you're having them. He knows where you live. He knows, he's telling the church, I know the culture that you're in. I understand the ins and outs. And so in a modern context, when we sit back and we look at the things that we're dealing with, but we've got to be able to go into a hospital when we're sick. And we've got to be able to get counseling when we need it. But we also need to be discerners because the word of God is alive and active. And if we get away from biblical principle, even in trying to be healed, are we really being healed? And so he, he says, I know where you live. I know the difficulties that you have living out your faith in a pagan culture. And, and so he tells us this, he knows the unnoticed faith. Now, what do I mean by that? He mentions a name that is only mentioned here in the Bible and one other extra-biblical historical account of this person's name. And the extra-biblical historical account that mentions this person's name is only back in reference to what's being said here in Revelation. So he mentions the name Antipas, who was a martyr, according to what we know, based on what this passage in Revelation says. So what Jesus is trying to relay to us is he notices what nobody else in history will notice. He notices the quiet faith that some of you have. Because not all of us are called to stand on a platform and proclaim the word in the manner in which God has called me to do. But he has called all of us to be faithful to his word, even in a culture that's thumbing its nose at it. To stand firmly and boldly secure and rooted in the faith that we have, even in a pagan culture. Folks, I have railed against this over and over again. And I say it again here. America is not, 
has not and will not, as a society, ever be a Christian nation. You are not Christian just because you build your life on biblical principles. It's, it's not going to work that way. You are only a Christian if Christ is at the central focus. The reason you do everything that you do. The reason that you say everything that you say. The reason that you function the way that you function is Christ. We can't say that about our society. Here's more conspiracy theory. Go pull up Google Maps and look at Washington, D.C. Pull up Google Maps and look at how the streets were built. Every monument in D.C. is at a point of a pentagram that's created by the streets. You, you think that was done accidentally? No, it wasn't done accidentally. I, I don't care what any, anybody else says. It has not and never will be a Christian nation. Can there be believers in a pagan culture? Absolutely. We're living proof that it's possible. But we have to make sure that we stand out away from all of that because Jesus says, listen to me, I know. I know what's going on in your culture. I know what you're struggling with personally. I know what the culture is trying to convince you of. And I know that you're discerning this and you're trying to figure this thing out. I know how much, that's, how much that struggle is. I know how many people you've lost in your life. I know how many people have ridiculed you because you don't want to do things the way that they do. I know what you're thinking right now as you hear these words. I know and your faith in me doesn't go unnoticed. So take heart in that. But Jesus doesn't just tell them that he notices the unnoticed faith. He says, I see this. But I need you to understand that there's still a level of accountability. And here's something that in the church we don't like. He tells them, he says, that he holds them all accountable for the actions of a few. So hear me on this, church. We all are held accountable for the actions of a few who have come into our care. So when you see churches and you ask churches about church discipline, and they say there is no such thing as church discipline, they do not want to hold anybody accountable. There are churches that will, that will put up signs and banners and tell you that you belong here, come as you are, belong before you believe. You can't. Because church, you don't belong to the culture. You can't go into the culture and be the culture and still say that you believe. The culture's intent is to stand in direct opposition to the gospel. Can't have it both ways. And when you allow people to believe that they can belong to a group of people before they believe what that group of people believes, it's a lie. It's a cultural inaccuracy in Scripture. It's an excuse not to hold people accountable. We've, look, we've been, we have been, I know we've been talked about outside the walls of this church. We have had to have hard conversations with people. And we have had to ask people to leave fellowship of this church. And we did it in a biblical manner. And people have ridiculed us in other churches. How could you ask somebody not to come back to the church? That's so not Christian. It so is Christian. When you have been warned over and over again that your belief in something is leading you down the wrong path and your actions continue to follow that path, 
then you have to ask yourself the question. At what point do you stop fellowshipping with a group of people when you no longer believe the same thing that they do? I ask, I've asked the question every time. Why is it that you continue to come here? I believe it's one of two reasons. You're struggling with it and you're trying to figure it out, but you refuse to go according to what the Word says that we've given to you. Or you've got spiritual entity influencing you trying to disrupt the culture. In either case, if you're going to remain in an unrepentant state, there can't be fellowship here. And we've had that conversation. And it's not an easy conversation. Those conversations has been, have been had with as much care as you can have them with. They've been had with tears. They've been had with prayer. They've been had with sleepless nights because it's not simple stuff. But folks, we can't afford to just be a group of people that are just about seeing how many people we can put in a bunch of chairs in a room. Because he says, I'm going to hold you all accountable for the actions of a few. Michael, how can you prove that? What does Jesus say to the church? I have a few things against you. Listen to this. Because some of you hold to the teachings of Balaam. Skip to verse 15. In the same way, some of you. But he told the whole church that I hold this against all of you. Folks, when you've got people in your life that are doing these kind of things, you cannot afford spiritually to want to be held accountable for their inaction, their inability to, to have a repentant heart. So do we want you to invite your friends into the church? Absolutely, because I think you know me well enough. They're going to hear the truth. Sometimes the truth is a little bit harsher than people like to hear, but they're going to hear the truth. But you need to know that you are going to be held accountable. Now, here's the thing. I, we always, I know you want to know the teachings that are being held to. So the teachings of Balaam are, are, are traced all the way back to Numbers chapters 22 through 24. And, and there's a little bit of information in Numbers chapter 31 about Balaam. Balaam was basically a diviner who believed that he could communicate with all of the gods. And so Balak, who's king of, of Moab at this time, the Israelites are coming within close proximity to their region. And he's in fear of this group of people because of a military campaign that could possibly take place. Now, in my mind, I don't understand that because... Like Israel is not a vast nation and known for their vast army, but there's a fear that sets in, and instead of doing what Scripture says that we should do in order to be saved, he runs to somebody else, culturally speaking, who can give him the words of authority. And ultimately, the, another reason that Jesus addresses his church the way that he does by saying the words that, that I am he, I am the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. I'm the one that has that word, the only word that matters. Balaam used his words to entice Balak, who then enticed the men of Israel to sacrifice to idols without their knowing it and, and get into extra-biblical relationships. Let's just put it that way. They fornicated with the women of Moab. 
leaving and abandoning the love that they had for God. And so you've got this group of people that are there. Now you couple that mentality because in the church you're like, well, people don't do that. I hear about that all the time. I hear, I hear about that all the time. That th These two couples were really good friends in the church and then this happened and the, the husband of this one started sleeping with the wife of that one. And everybody's just okay with it. It's not okay. It's not something that you tolerate. Not in the church. Because it's not right. When it's blatant and it ain't right, you address it. You don't just say, oh, well, they need to keep hearing about Jesus because they need to know Jesus. You're right, but they need to know the truth about their personal situation that they made public and everybody knows about it. And they need to know that it's a sin. That Jesus isn't tolerating it. But you also have the teachings of the Nicolaitans who are being believed and followed. So there's a lot of, a lot of debate over what that means, but I'm going to give you the, the basic understanding, very simple. The name Nicholas, for which this, this um, teaching is derived, Nicholas appears in Acts. It's believed that he's the one that started this teaching, but here's, the, here's what the name Nicholas means in the Bible. It means to conquer the people. So go figure. You've got a whole belief system that's bent on conquering the people. So how does that work in, a, in this standpoint? Well, it kind of works like what I just said. Well, you just got to leave them alone. Give them some grace and give them some room to hear the gospel and let Jesus work in their life because it's just it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be okay. That is absolutely a biblical falsehood. That's not how grace works at all. Grace is given so that you can receive truth. Grace is not what we give. Grace is what God has given. Truth is what we're called to proclaim. You're not called to proclaim grace. You're called to proclaim truth. And Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit gives the grace for people to receive that truth. So here's what basically, I'll give you the doctrinal or theological understanding. So basically the Nicolaitans would say this, the atonement of Christ has made sin less fatal. Meaning that I can now view my sin, indulge in my sin, and persist in my sin even. And it is okay because it's not going to work death in me because I'm saved. There are churches everywhere that teach that without even realizing they're teaching it. By teaching the once saved, always saved, but I still live like hell six days a week. You are not saved. It's why throughout the New Testament, it doesn't say you are saved. It says you will be saved. It's a future tense that when Christ comes back or you enter his rest through physical death, then you will be saved. Everything else prior to that is a response to the grace that He has offered you because you heard the truth about your sin, about your need for His grace, and you lived in it. That has nothing to do with you. The Scriptures are clear on that. Romans chapter 6, verse 4, We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that... Do you hear that? How many people, how many people are leaving out the death in baptism? You are buried in baptism. When you go under the water, you are dead. You are drowning in your sin. It says, just as Christ was 
raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. When you make the decision to follow Christ at the prompting of His Holy Spirit, and you go under that water, baptism is the first symbol of a new life. It's death going underwater. When you come up out of that water, it's a new life from that day forward. Does it mean that you're going to no longer sin? No, the Nicolaitans would say that that's the case. But no, it means that you're going to be made even more aware of the truth of your sin. And it's going to make you sick. You're going to see your sin in such a way that you want to do something about it. But now you understand that you can't, but he can you go from death to life. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. And Paul says, But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Jude, I love Jude. Jude's kind of a straightforward dude. Just kind of puts it out there. And he says in, in verse 4, he says, For certain individuals who, whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. You think these people are not slipped in among the church in Revelation chapter 2 right here in Pergamum? You think these people haven't slipped right up into the church right down the street from us? Do you think they haven't slipped in to this church? Maybe sitting here in any given Sunday... And want to push this and peddle this. He says they are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. And deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. And it's ultimately why Paul, if you go back to Galatians chapter 5, just a few short verses before the passage that I just read. He says, you were running so well. Addressing his church that he planted that God put on his heart to go and proclaim that gospel to. He says, you were running so well. Who has obstructed you from obeying the truth? Not obeying the grace, obeying the truth. Who has obstructed you from obeying the truth? He says, such persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. He says, a little leaven works through the whole batch of dough. He uses that phrasing multiple times, not just in Galatians, but in Corinthians as well. Where he talks about that. Now we would be like, well, you need leaven for the dough to rise. You want the dough to rise, but you don't want this dough to rise in your church. You don't want to be yoked together with these kind of people. Because they will, they will lead you astray and do everything they can to kill you. And they think they're trying to help. And they are not. Now we have mentioned this in every time we've approached the word and... And Jesus just goes back and he says the same thing. Revelation 2.16. So here's the things that you have allowed to happen. Here's what you need to do. And it's emphatic. Therefore, repent. But he doesn't just say, therefore, repent. He says, otherwise, unlike other places and other churches, with this dealing, otherwise, church... I will hold you accountable. Here's what he says. I will come to you shortly and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. You're going to be a part of that. We need to be people that heed this warning now because when we stand in front of him on the day, the day that is spoken about in Scripture, we can't say anything else. We are just stuck with the decisions that we've already made. I tolerated it. And Jesus is going to say, 
Why? Well, I thought it was graceful to tolerate it. Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. You worker of iniquity. You thought that you were saved, but you were not because you would not repent. You did it that one time, back years ago. But you didn't realize that every single morning brings a new refreshing of the spirit that you need just to survive the day. You need to have that conversation. And it doesn't need to be some generic conversation. It doesn't need to be that, that re recited ritualistic prayer. Forgive me my trespasses as I forgive those who trespass against me. Jesus said that that was the model, but you also need to be very personal with your God about the things that are trespasses against him. He knows them. He needs you to recite them. He needs you to realize that you've done these things. And as he calls them to mind, it's, some of them are going to break your heart. You're going to feel like an idiot. But you know what? It's just between you and God, and he's not doing it to make you feel like an idiot. He's doing it to draw you back to the humility of repentance so that you stay grounded and focused on your relationship with him. He does it as a loving father. He says, therefore, repent, or I'm going to come back, and this is about to take place. And I said this Sunday morning, I say it again here. You don't want this smoke. I've heard that statement been made many times in a modern context. You don't want that smoke. I can promise you, you don't want this smoke. This is the end all tell all of all smoke. And here's the thing, church. We're not exempt from this. And it starts here among us right now making decisions to repent on a regular basis. Peter addresses it in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. He says, For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Wow. And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. The confrontation that we face now looking at the word that's coming out of the mouth of Jesus in Revelation is far better than the one that we will face if we continue in our unrepentance. You remember Balaam? I talked about Balaam just a little while ago and what they actually were believing because of Balaam. It didn't end well for Balaam. If you go back to Numbers chapter 31, the last part of verse 8, it says that they also killed Balaam, son of Beor, with the sword. Now, this is a physical sword, but it's ironic to me that the word sword shows up right there. And Jesus is making it very clear that I was responsible for that happening. Why God wouldn't do that? He absolutely would. He will absolutely destroy his enemies. And the world is going to come to an end according to Revelation. He's going to destroy his enemies once and for all. And to us, the warning is we can't sit on our hands, shut our mouths about things that we know are in direct contradiction to the word. You can't have a discernibility about you, a discernment in your spirit about yourself and not repent and then about other people after you've repented of your own stuff and not go to them in love and humility and say, God has revealed this to me and I feel like it's killing you and I don't want that for you. You need to be able to walk away from this. And here's where it comes from that people want to ignore. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, churches ignore this all the time. Paul says in verses 4 through 8, In the same name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This is specifically talking about putting them out of the fellowship of the believers. 
You have no fellowship here. But Paul says that you're doing it so that if Satan is going to is going to work about iniquity in the flesh, then we're going to put them out there so that they can he can burn it all up and we're going to hope that they repent and they come back into the fold. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And with all things we have seen, there is always, always, always a promise from our God. And in verse 17 of Revelation 2, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, the one who repents, the one who's willing to be held accountable, the one who is willing to speak life into its members, the people that it yokes itself together with that are struggling in sin. He says, the one that overcomes, I will give hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone inscribed with a new name known only to the one who receives it. Now, here's the two things. I want to show you these very quickly. I don't want to be overly, I don't want to overdo it, but he says hidden manna. Now, there's a lot of uh, understanding from this. Manna, as we know it, was uh, in the Old Testament. As Israel is wandering in the wilderness, God provided by his grace and mercy bread from heaven. That's what manna literally means. So we know that word manna. We also know that Jesus made a claim in John chapter 6. It's recorded in other gospels as well. That he is the bread that came down from heaven. But here we can't say that the hidden manna is Jesus. Because Jesus has revealed himself already to John in, John, in uh, Revelation chapter 1. He's revealed himself to us who believe. Because he's made himself known to us personally. So he's not hidden. So he's not the hidden manna. Because he also says in verse 17 that he's going to give us the hidden manna. So I believe it to be something a little bit different. And you can kind of link it back to verse 7 of Revelation 2 where Jesus says that to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so you've got this picture of the tree of life. And we, we know the tree of life. It stood in the Garden of Eden all the way back in Genesis. And the only reason that Adam and Eve were not allowed to eat from that tree was why? Because they were actually not allowed to eat from one other tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I've taught it this way. I don't know that I've ever heard anybody else teach it this way. I don't believe that God intended for them not to have a knowledge of good and evil. What I believe the intent was, was that God was saying, I don't want you to eat from this tree. I want you to enjoy the garden. I want you to enjoy all the bountifulness of what I have created for you. And I personally believe that had Adam and Eve eaten from the tree of life first, because there is no address that God says you can't eat from that tree, that if they would have eaten from that tree and the purity of relationship with God would have been in them because the fruit, according to what Revelation is telling us, you'll have the right to eat from the tree of life, which is an everlasting nourishment. When they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil after the fact, knowledge would have been pure. It's defiled right now. So he's going to give us the opportunity to come back to that purity. Well, the hidden man is the same thing. What we know of it in part from Scripture in the Old Testament and what Jesus said about it in the New Testament about himself 
It just simply means that he's going to give us something that tastes so sweet, that is such an eternal, of, of such eternal value. We can't fathom it on this side of eternity. But he wants us to understand that what I'm trying to give you is something that is so good, your senses can't even, you can't understand it. I can't even describe it for you. Nobody can. I, I read so much on this and tried to find so many explanations, and every commentator, every scriptural reference that you can find, nobody can explain it by just simply saying, it's just unfathomable what he's going to do. It's the sweetest and the, the sweetest of fruit, the sweetest of that bread of heaven that we can't understand, and it's been hidden because we have been defiled by our understanding of knowledge because of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the same principle with the hidden manna as we see spiritual nourishment pass on from us, from the tree of life. But he also talks about a white stone with a new name. So a white stone can mean a lot of things. In an ancient context, anytime someone was on trial, the jury would cast their votes for innocence or guilt with white and black stones. So if you had more white stones cast than black stones, you were innocent. If you had more black stones cast than white stones, you were guilty. So they would understand that. But it also has the same sense of such a brilliant looking color that you just, you look at it and you're just like, wow, look how beautiful this is. There's also instances of, of almost like a trophy. It was, I, I can't pronounce the word because I'm really bad with uh, crazy pronounced words. But there is also a sense of what Jesus is talking about here as not just a sign of friendship, but it was also could be what was known as a, a ticket into banquets and festivals. You were considered a guest of honor if you held this white stone. And so you didn't even have to be invited because you had the white stone in society. You could just walk in and be welcomed in. Now, when we talk about a new name, there's a lot of different uh, understandings of that as well. I'm just going to tell you what I believe it to be. There is but one name above every name that is going to give me access to even the gates of heaven. And on my white stone, I hope that it's the name of Yeshua Jesus. Is there any biblical understanding for that? Is there any, true, is there any just straight out, this is what it is? No, this is another mystery. I'm just telling you what I believe. I believe that that new name that is written on my white stone, it's not going to be my name because my name doesn't carry much weight, but the name of Yeshua will open up those gates. It'll allow me through those doors. It'll give me access to the very presence of God. And he's trying to tell his church, if you overcome this, this is what I have to offer you. So we're left once again, just like we're left in every single case. When Jesus comes, he's coming to do one of two things. He's either coming to save me or he's coming to judge me. You need to be able to answer that question now so that when you stand before him on that day, you know he's coming to save me.